The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I hope that after these three messages on the three priorities of our church, those of you who attend regularly at Bethlehem will be able to give an explanation of what we're about here. What our three priorities are. Two Sundays ago, we began with just one little symbol up in the left-hand corner there and focused on the priority of worship, namely that our existence is to reflect the grace of God back to him in worship. The arrow goes up to his glory. Last week, we focused on priority number two, which is edification or nurture, in which we apply the grace of God to one another in edification for our faith and our love to the glory of God. So the arrow goes round and round inside the church. Today, the focus is on priority number three. We exist to extend the grace of God out beyond the church to those who do not believe for the ingathering of God's elect from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation to the glory of God. Worship, nurture, and outreach. We live from the grace of God and for the glory of God. Our great charter, if you want one verse that captures as well as any other, the philosophy of ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church, it's 1 Peter 4.11, which says, let the one who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ. From His grace, by His strength, for His glory. The overarching aim of everything we do is to be God-saturated or besotted with God, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Good. Let's say here at the end of this series something that might have not been made 
clear enough. Namely, all of these three priorities, worship, edification, and evangelism, are so organically connected that they stand or fall together. Where worship is ignored, fellowship begins to become thin and man-centered and unspiritual. And evangelism, if it exists at all, will tend to call people to a social group rather than to a sovereign God. But if nurture or edification is neglected, then the deceitfulness of sin will run unchecked in the narrow ruts of individualism and the collective testimony of love will vanish and the united heart of worship will disintegrate into a lot of individual efforts to have private religious experiences. And third, where evangelism is ignored, you've all experienced this, I'll bet, in part, where evangelism is ignored, the recipients of grace begin to feel very inauthentic. They feel like living contradictions to what they say with their mouth about the value of Christ and the lostness of the world. And so, worship begins to shrivel up and become a sham. And fellowship, well, it becomes clogged by nagging, unspoken sense of unreality in our midst. They stand or fall together. No church dare say, we're a worshiping church. We worship. And others evangelize and others teach. Nor dare any church say, we're a caring church. We're a nurturing and teaching church. Others can devote themselves to the vertical life of the soul. Nor dare we ever say, we're witnesses. We're missionaries. We don't sit around and stroke one another and sing spiritual songs. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't have that luxury. Parachurch groups have that luxury. They can say, we're going to focus on this one thing. They devote their whole life to that one thing. The church of Jesus Christ gets its mandate from the Lord. You are that church. The local church is a little miniature expression of the church universal. And Christ has devoted himself to making that church a worshiping church, a nurturing church, and an evangelizing church. And where one falters, the others go awry, and we are not what we should be. And therefore, we've got to call ourselves to account again and again. Are we growing at Bethlehem? Are you growing in your individual life in the spirit and truth of worship? Are you a more worshipful person today than five years ago? Are you growing in the depth and the biblicalness of your nurture and your teaching? And are we growing in the courage and the clarity and the fruitfulness of our evangelism? How are we doing? That's why we have regarded it as tremendously important to devote three Sundays to these three priorities and why today we devote this Sunday to evangelism and why I invite you now to turn with me to Luke chapter 14 and 15. If you closed your Bible, I hope you'll open it again. What I want to do with this very familiar passage that Steve read, 
is put it in the context of what comes before in chapter 14. These two chapters are so full of inspiration and guidance for priority three, I can hardly believe it. I'm only going to make four points from the text, the chapters, and then close with two practical applications to our life together. And then tonight I'm going to keep going with five more. We'll talk about practical ways we're going to flesh this out as a church. Point number one, God's invitation to the banquet hall of his eternal joy is sent through the church indiscriminately to all people. I'll repeat that. God's invitation to the banquet of his eternal joy is sent through the church indiscriminately to all people. Let's look at chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. Jesus himself is at a banquet. One of these people at the banquet get all excited and say, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, always alert to how to teach a lesson, picks up on this idea of the kingdom and eating and turns it into a parable. Verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the same time, or at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for all is now ready. Now, what this signifies, I think, is that God has sent his son to the Jewish nation, especially the leaders of that nation, to summon them to the kingdom through repentance. But, verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I pray you have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. I pray you have me excused. And another said, I married a wife, therefore I can't come. And so the servant came and reported to his master and the householder in anger. Did you ever stop and think that the Great Commission was born in anger? In anger, he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, no, Go out into highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, isn't the point of this parable that the invitation to the kingdom, the banquet of God's kingdom, is sent out through his servant, and today, I believe, through the church, indiscriminately to all people. Go out to the highways and hedges and look under the bridges and compel people to come in. Until Jesus comes back, can't we assume the house isn't full yet? When the house is full, he'll come, won't he? And until he comes, the house isn't full yet. And if the house isn't full and he aims to have it full, which he says he does, then it lies upon his people, who are the representatives of Christ, the first servant, to be about the business of beating the bushes to find people to bring into the house. Compel them to come in. 
That is, be urgent in your invitations and persuasions. Now, he's very realistic. He says some people are going to look at their invitation, rip it up, throw it in the garbage. May not even open the letter. I got a field. I got to go look at my field. I got cows. I got to go check out my cows. I got a wife. I can't come to heaven. The absurdity. Oh, the folly of unbelief. The blindness of people. I got a cow. I've got a cow. I can't come to heaven. God's invitation to the banquet of eternal joy is sent through you, the church, indiscriminately to everybody. Everybody in this room has an invitation. I'm giving it to you right now. You will never say at the judgment day, I, I didn't get any invitation. It didn't come in the mail. Must have got lost. Because Jesus Christ is going to say, September 22, 1985, 11.43, I gave you an invitation. You've got it. Point number two. To enjoy the rare tastes of God's table, you must stop stuffing your stomach with the local cuisine. You get up Thanksgiving morning and go to the breakfast table and eat a loaf of white bread, a whole loaf. Then somebody calls you on the telephone at 9.30 and says, come over and share turkey dinner at 11.30. You will want to go. I got a cow. I got a wife. I got bread. I don't need your banquet. It doesn't look good to me anyway. I'm stuffed. Now, to make this clear, Jesus tells two more parables here in Luke 14. To make this clear that there is a condition upon getting into this banquet, namely hunger, he tells these two parables. And it's really important. You see the connection here. He has just given an indiscriminate invitation, right, to everybody. And look what happens in verse 25. Multitudes are following. They're responding. It's working. And then Jesus, in his such unenthusiastic way, says two more parables that just sort of water down everybody's enthusiasm. He says, to enjoy this table, you've got to stop stuffing yourself with the local cuisine. Let's read it. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, that's the local cuisine. Okay, got it? That's the local fare. Unless you hate that. Quit stuffing yourself with it. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower? Okay, here's the first parable does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or, second parable, what king going to encounter another king in war will sit down first and take counsel whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, he sends an embassy and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has and stop stuffing himself with the local cuisine cannot be my disciple. Now, coming right after the open invitation to the banquet of the kingdom of God, surely the point of these two parables is something like this. The banquet hall is big. It's big. Holds lots and lots of people. Two, the food is endlessly delightful. It's good food. It will satisfy your soul forever. Three, the invitation to this banquet is sent to everybody in this room. Everybody. Without exception. Indiscriminately. But, there's an entrance requirement to the banquet. You've got to be hungry. Oh, everyone who thirsts, let him come to the fountain. You've got to be more hungry for what God gives than what the world gives. If you are satisfied with the world, or you delight more in the world, and the white bread of the earth is filling your stomach so that you have no appetite for the fellowship of God, you won't enter the banquet. If you come to the banquet of Jesus with a candy bar stuck in your back pocket just in case, you won't get in. Anybody who comes must be hungry. To enjoy the rare tastes of God's table, you must stop stuffing your stomach with the local cuisine. Three, even greedy people who live for money and lustful people who live for sex will accept the radical demands of this invitation if they have ears to hear. Now, I want you to see the connection between chapter 14 and 15. Let's read verses 34 through the first verse of chapter 15. And you, you notice the connection. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is fit neither for the land nor for the dunghill. Men throw it away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear. You can be the salt of the earth today, that is, the, the divine flavor of the world, if you are willing to renounce all that you eat, all that you have, in order to enjoy the banquet hall of God's kingdom. Salty people are people who have experienced such a radical revolution of their desires that they are more hungry for God's righteousness than for money or family or praise or power or sex or scholarships or anything in all creation. When you meet such a person, there are many. The way is narrow and few there be that find it. But when you meet a person 
who has turned away from all the, the offerings of this world and is holy, feasting on God, you know that's salt. And all of a sudden, all the zingy and zesty and zangy tidbits of the world become bland, eternally bland. And you wonder, how could I have ever, ever thought that's what life was about? When God had a banquet for me, Not everybody is willing to renounce all that he has and become a disciple. And therefore, Jesus says with such awful sobriety, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he walks away. To end a sermon like that is so ominous. Some don't have ears. Jesus, don't let it be this morning anyway. I've been praying for hours this morning, since five o'clock. Don't let it be that this morning that will be true, that some don't have ears. But look at chapter 15. This news is so encouraging. Not a person here is excluded from that banquet. The invitation is there. And you don't have to think that anything you've ever done excludes you because of verse 1 of chapter 15 and verse 2. Who is hearing? Who's got ears to hear all of a sudden? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and he was eating with them. Tax collectors, lovers of money, people who have devoted their lives to money. Sinners, that surely includes prostitute types. We see that elsewhere in Luke. People who devoted their lives to debauchery and lust. And they are in the banquet. You see, the banquet has already begun. You catch that? The banquet has begun. It's not just off there in heaven somewhere. Here's Jesus eating with these people. And the banquet of God has begun. The king has arrived. The doors are open. The invitation's given. Some have already entered in. And who are they? Money lovers. Sexy people who have thrown their lives away in rottenness. And he's just sitting there eating with them saying, it's all right, you're in. Just like that. And he's calling us, you, me, this morning, to enter the banquet, to have ears to hear. One last point. When sinners respond to the invitation of Christ, the Pharisees grumble and God Rejoices. You see this contrast here now? Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, they are the religious representatives of God. They're supposed to know what God is like. And they're grumbling that this indiscriminate invitation has resulted in the worst sorts of people getting into the kingdom. And what does Jesus do now? How, how does he respond to this? Well, in typical manner, he starts telling stories. He tells three stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Sometimes called the parable of, of the prodigal son. They all have the same point. And the point is, listen, you Pharisees, I'm going to give you God's perspective on this meal. 
You told me your, your perspective. You're all upset that I'm eating with these sinners and tax collectors. Let me tell you how God is responding to this right now in heaven. Verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10. Second parable. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 22, third parable of the prodigal son. Same point. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. The gladness of God in the returning of prostitutes and tax collectors and anybody in this room. You can make God hop this morning. Michael, when she saw her husband, the king, coming back before the ark, despised him because he was the king and he was making Mary like a common man. And the Pharisees, God help them, are going to despise what God does before his throne when you come home. Four points. Number one, God's invitation to the banquet of his eternal joy is sent through the church indiscriminately to all people. Second, to enjoy the rare tastes of God's table, you must stop stuffing your stomach with the local cuisine. Third, Even greedy people who have lived for money and uh, lustful people who have lived for sex will respond and accept the radical demands and be received if they have ears to hear. And fourth, when they do respond, when you do respond, Pharisees will grumble, but God will leap for joy. The gladness of God is our mission And now I close with two practical applications. And tonight we go on with five more. How can we as a church and you as as individuals take up the mission that Jesus laid down? He first summoned people to the banquet. Now he's gone and sent us into the world. How do we summon people to the banquet? Priority number three. Well, when all the programs and seminars and meetings have come and gone, and they're good, but they're so discouraging sometimes. You open up Christianity Today and Eternity and Moody Monthly, and you read thousands, it seems like, of books and seminars and video cassettes and all kinds of things telling you how to do it. You just feel good night. I'll never, I'll never be a witness. I haven't seen those 18 tapes or seminars or books. Or... Look, they come and go. They're like flowers. Here's one, it'd be gone five years. Here's another, it'd be gone. You know what never goes and what has borne fruit for 2,000 years and will bear fruit till Jesus comes? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And when you tell other people why you love Jesus, God uses it to save souls. So, look, I got four little practical P's. P-P-P-P. To help you put some flesh on this, pray, portray, persuade, 
and plead. Here's what I mean, just briefly. Do you make a regular practice of praying that God would make you courageous and clear and bold and loving and that he would prepare people that you're going to talk to this day? I know you don't, many of you, because you're scared that he might answer you, because he always does. I know, I've been there. You know that if you get down on your knees at six in the morning and say, Lord, make an opportunity today, you know, ooh, he might do it. He will do it. So I call you to pray. Leave the rest to God. Pray that God make you bold, courageous, clear, loving, and open the hearts of the people you're going to talk to. Second, portray Christ. And love people like crazy. Break your schedules if you have to. Do what you need to do to show that you're free in Christ to love and not just living for yourself and your family. Love other people. Be a living evidence of the reality of Christ. Three, persuade. Be ready. There will be people who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you and you need some reasons. Here's why I go to church and here's why I love Jesus. Here's why I've staked my life on Him and here's why I expect Him to go to heaven and I'd like you to come along. And finally, plead. Now, let me focus in on this one because a lot of you are faithful witnesses. That is, you live lives of righteousness and love where you are and you take appropriate occasions to tell people that you love Christ and what He means to you and that He's valuable and He's true. But you know what most of us never do that I think a lot of people are waiting for? You have a friend. You've been working side by side for three years. A brother, a father, mother, cousin. You've known him for 12 years. You've told them often about what you believe and why you believe it. They know where you stand. They've seen your life. They know that you're special. Now what? You know what you need to do? Call them on the phone. Joe, I'd like to go out to lunch today. i got something important I want to talk about. It's so heavy on my heart. Would you? I'll take you to Annie's parlor. Okay. Pick him up. Sit at the table. Don't pull any punches. No punches at all. You say... I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want you to be saved so bad I can hardly stand it. I love you so much, I don't want you to be lost. Won't you believe? Won't you forsake your sin and believe and join me in the family of God? Come to church with me. You know, I bet many of you like me have prayed, God, give me tears for the lost. He won't do it. He'll never do it until you get in that place and he'll give it to you. I promise you he will. You take that opportunity to look somebody right in the eye and say, I want so bad for you to be saved. You know, there are so many people that have heard Christian witnesses, they're drawing logical conclusions that we're not drawing. They say to themselves, that sounds possible, right? And they look different and could be true. But if it's true, then surely they'll try to persuade me to come in off the ledge. Now, let me jump. There's a woman standing on the bridge over 35W a few weeks ago on the outside of the fence. And uh, we called 911. And they came up and they took half an hour and talked her out of it. You ever tried to talk anybody out of going to hell? I mean, eyeball to eyeball. If you're standing there on the bridge and you look at her, you, you don't just say, Jesus means a lot to me and I love him. You look her in the face and say, don't jump. Don't jump. Come on, come on. So, please, pray, consider. There are some of you, maybe several dozen in this congregation right now, who can think of people, good night, I've borne witness for song, and I've never, I've never really finished the job. 
I never really looked him in the face and said, I want you to be saved. Would you be saved? All right, one more brief point. And this is sort of a confession and uh, a turnaround in my thinking. Up until now, I have uh, considered worship as something for the people of God to be done in the house of God and evangelism, something for the people of God to do in the marketplace, work, home, neighborhood. And I have never encouraged you in the last five years to bring unbelievers to this service. I've never told you not to. In fact, I've been glad when they're here. There are some here now. But I've never made it a strategy. I've never said, bring people, invite people. Because I've always thought this is what the church does on Sunday morning. Now, this is inconsistent of me. And I'll try to explain why. Here's the change that's gone on in my mind. I don't ever intend to, to stop doing my best to serve up meat for the souls of the saints on Sunday morning. But what, what is good evangelism? Good evangelism is directing people's attention to the truth and value of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. you agree with that? Good evangelism is directing people's attention to the truth and value of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is worship? Worship is the gathering of God's people to celebrate the truth and value of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. How are those two things connected? Those things are pretty closely connected. Here's the connection that I now see. It could well be that dozens of people in your acquaintance over the long haul have sort of warmed up to the possibility of Christ. Never been to church, maybe, or the last time they went, it was horrible. But might be ready to respond for you to say, look, why don't you come... See what Baptists do on Sunday morning. Come, come to, to worship at Bethlehem. Not expecting that they're going to worship, nor taking offense that they don't, but expecting that this might happen. Could it be that the decisive evidence that someone needs of the truth and value of Christ is to sit in the midst of a Holy Spirit-charged people of God as they celebrate that truth and that value? It has happened. It can happen more. And so I'm, I'm turning my idea around, not so much to change the form of the service, but to change the strategy to simply say to you, consider those you know, colleagues, relatives, neighbors, and pray about the possibility that what we do here as a family might be the closing and decisive evidence that they need to see that it's real. The Holy Spirit comes down on a worshiping people in an unusual way. The Holy Spirit anoints the preaching of His Word in an unusual way. And therefore, there's good reason to expect that in an unusual way, unbelievers might be regenerated in this hour. It has happened. And I pray that it will happen more and more.